He is risen. That's really good news. And it also means another thing is that it's Easter morning, which means I had to tuck in my shirt um, by exhortation from my wife. So I feel a little awkward up here. I don't always tuck, but it is Easter, and I think Jesus at least deserves the tucked-in shirt and more, right? Um, so if it's your first time here, welcome. Thank you. And uh, really glad that you're here to, to celebrate with us uh, this morning, this this Easter Sunday, and, and it's kind of funny because, you know, we get really pumped up and excited about Easter, and we put on, you know, even tuck in our shirts, and we get our kids all pretty and wear, you know, nice hats, and we do all kinds of, of things, but it's funny, if you've been around here, we talk about resurrection every Sunday. We talk about the cross every Sunday. It's not like an add-on, attack-on to the Christian life, or, or maybe we should really focus in because, you know, all the other weeks, we just talk about ourselves, right? And so I was just reminded of that this morning and the hope that we have in, in resurrection, and yet I think it's important for us to, to dive in and to dig in and to say, well, what does this resurrection of Jesus mean for us? Well, what does it mean for my life today, tomorrow, 50 years from now, a million years uh, uh, from, from now? And, um, and, and one of the things I, I, was, I was thinking about uh, is one of the refrains that I, I find my life uh, found in and, and things I've said, maybe you, you can relate to this, is we often say to ourselves, if only, if only I would have fill in the blank. If only I would have maybe taken this job or maybe if I would have gone to this church or married this person. If only I wouldn't have stepped out into traffic. Um, if only I never answered the phone and got the call that it was cancer. Um, if only I would have maybe treated my body a little bit better or, or, or wouldn't have done this or wouldn't have done this. And, and often we, we find ourselves in this, this place of, of regret. And, and I think that's pretty common. I think it's why we are drawn to movies like Back to the Future. Any amens? Um, one of my favorite movies of the 80s, you know, j- jumping into a time machine to go back and what? Erase what happened in the past. We, we all feel that long. I wish I could undo what I, I did. I wish I could make history turn out different for the future. And, and that's why I love Marty McFly and why I watched that movie, because I look at my life and I see regret. I see things that if only I would have done this a little bit, a little bit better. And so we have been, as a church, in a series of messages, the, the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 11, is we're going to look at the last I am statement. And Jesus makes a profound statement, and I think it's apropos for our Sunday morning, which happens to be Easter, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life and so it's a, it's a familiar story if you've been around the scriptures or been around church or, or maybe not even been around church. Is, it's the story of Lazarus. And, and Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. And, and, he, and Jesus loved Lazarus and loved the family, loved Mary and Martha. They were, they're all siblings. And, and his friend dies. And yet Jesus is far away. And, and, and he, he, he dies. He's, he's fully dead. We're not going to read the whole story. And they call for Jesus to come and heal him and, and raise Lazarus from the dead. But it's, a, it's an odd story. It's an odd story because Jesus doesn't come right away. Like when we think about God, right? We, we think that, God, you need to come now. Like obviously someone's sick. The cancer has come. The, 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 the child is sick. Like we need to come now. And yet Jesus is, is waiting. He's doing something. He's always up to something. He's always going to, to do things in a very surprising way. He's not always going to answer our prayers the ways we think he, he, he is. And so let's, let's look at that story just for a moment um, as we consider resurrection, as we consider the empty tomb. So in John chapter 11, if you have a Bible, it's, I'm going to read it uh, starting at verse 17 and just read to 27. 
It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is the word, into the world. This is the word of God for us this morning. It's, a, it's an interesting story that, that it's, a, it's a pointer to what is to come on that Easter Sunday. This, this story of Lazarus, this, this guy who's, who's dead. He's been dead for, for four days. Jesus, why didn't you, you come? If only you would have come. And, and you notice the response in verse 21 of, of, of Martha. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. Now, many people have looked at this text, and I don't agree with them. Many have said this is actually a, a statement of faith from Martha. That she knows that, that, that one day there will be this resurrection in the future and, and that her brother will be alive because that's what Jewish people believed and they believed the Old Testament just like Jesus did, just like Martha did. But I think woven into her statement is actually a mixture of faith and also complaint, a mixture of faith and also doubt. Because you remember who Martha is? You remember the story of Mary and Martha? So Jesus comes to the house of Mary and Martha in, in, in Luke's gospel, and, and, and Martha's the one kind of getting the house ready, and she's mad at Mary. You, you remember this story? And, and she's mad. She says, what are you doing? Like, the, Jesus is coming. We need to show him hospitality. And, and, and what does Mary do? She's like, well, I, I need to sit at his feet. I need to listen to him. I need to learn from him, right? So, so here's Martha, the, the frantic one, the, the one who actually engages Jesus and says, hey, if you would have come, my brother would be alive right now. What took you so long? And yeah, there's a seed of faith. I, I know whatever you ask God, it, it'll happen, but, but it's a very interesting, intriguing response of Martha. And, and I think it gives me comfort, and maybe it gives you comfort, that God can handle our doubts. God can handle our confusion. The, the, the Psalms are, are filled with, with questions of doubt and fear and what ifs and how do, we, how do I get through another day. One of those famous Psalms, Psalm 22, uh, you know, this Christ Psalm that actually points to Jesus and how he cries out from uh, the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why have you not come? Is this it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet Psalms always make a turn, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And then it goes on, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. This cry, this honesty, if only, if only God, you would have showed up in the way that I wanted you to. Where are you? And so there's this, this seed of of, of doubt, there's a seed of, of complaint. But going back to the back to the future analogy, which always ties into the gospel, this also isn't fantasy. 
the fact that something is going on with Jesus, something is going on with his resurrection, and something's going on in the scriptures that we actually can find hope when those prayers aren't answered, if only. If only you did things in the way I, I wanted you to do. If only I wouldn't have made that decision. If only I wouldn't have shipwrecked my life for 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it may, may be. Is that, that what Jesus is doing and the way he responds to Martha is he's not going to dwell in the past and say, hey, let's live there, right? If only I had done it, right? He's actually going to do something very, very profound, and he's going to bring her to the future. And we saw that in his response, right? In in her response and his response. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. He he doesn't dwell in the past. He doesn't say, if only, yeah, I I should have come quicker. You're right, Martha. He actually takes her to the future and says, "I I want you to imagine for a moment this glorious future where your brother will be raised from the dead. He will be fully alive again. And that's what Jesus always does to us. He doesn't let, let us live in the past and say, well, just keep dwelling on the past and all the if-onlys that you live with. I'm bringing you to the future and says, yes, you will rise again. And that was very common understanding for, for Jesus and Martha. The, the Old Testament scriptures are full of that. The new heavens and the new earth, Isaiah 65. Not, not anything that's, that's all that, that out of the ordinary. In Isaiah 65, this beautiful picture that points to this new heavens and new earth that's coming when God will redeem and restore all things. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it a sound of weeping, crying, we don't need you anymore. Because I'm making all things new. Like, just think about that for a moment. All we know in this life is tears. Like, like you can't imagine, I mean, maybe you're a dude, you're just like, I haven't cried since 83. Well, okay. But just recently, I saw my dad, I hadn't seen my dad cry in a long time. I just saw him cry, he was in the hospital, sick. Going, what happened? But, like, like a world where there's no more tears. Like, we can't even imagine, what, what does that look like? What does that, that mean? And, and if you keep going in, in Isaiah, it says there'll be no more, um, in verse 20, no more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days. I've walked that road. Second daughter lived four days. That's done. Or an old man who does not fill out his days, if only. I could have made my life count just a little bit more. Or the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Work is hard, isn't it? It's frustrating. It doesn't always go as you want. Thorns and thistles, right? Sweat in our brow. Maybe sweat in our cubicle, however, whatever you're called to. But right, we, we have to deal with people every day. We have to deal with pain every day. That's all gone. People aren't going to steal our stuff anymore. We'll actually share everything. It'll all be to enjoy, right? The lion will lay down with the lamb. Even the animal kingdom, the animals that were 
enemies will now once lay down together. So, when Jesus says in John 11, your brother will rise again, he's pointing her to a glorious future. A future and a hope of resurrection. Where we're not just disembodied souls floating around playing harps in heaven, but we will have bodies, just like the body you have now, but that will be a glorious body, as, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, a heavenly body that's not broken down by sin and death and turmoil. A mind and a heart and in a life that actually works and loves the way it's supposed to love and it's not insecure anymore and it's not riddled by, by sin and death. It's not corrupted any longer. It's not going to break down any longer. The, the way Jesus always surprises us is he doesn't say, hey, let's live in the past and dwell on the if-onlys. He says, I'm pointing you to a glorious future where there is hope. And, and I think it's, 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 it's interesting the, the way we, we often think about Christianity and Jesus and the gospel and, and all these things is that we, we always think about, you know, Jesus has come down from heaven to earth, and, and yes, that's all true, right? He's incarnated, he's, he's dwelt among us, John 1 says, and, and he's moved into the neighborhood, which is all beautiful and right and, and, and good. But Jesus is also taking another step, and he's doing something even more profound by his next statement. And this is where I think caught Martha totally off guard and catches us off guard because of what Jesus says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, now Martha had this, this view of, it. yeah, there's going to be this future resurrection. All who believe, ancient people, old people, everyone before us that believes in God will, will one day be, you know, have some kind of general vague resurrection. But the thing that Jesus says that comes out of his mouth was totally shocking. He doesn't just say there's going to be a general resurrection in the future. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. This isn't just a dusty doctrine that we say on Sundays or, or confess to one another. It's now a doctrine has come in the flesh. That he is a doctrine. The resurrection has come in a person. That if you want to understand resurrection, you want to understand how the future is going to go, it's found actually in me. I am the resurrection. I'm the one who's coming to life. I'm the one who's overcoming death and sin and hell. I'm the one who's taken on your judgment day. I'm the life where all life is found. I'm the creator. I've created all things, including you. And I'm the redeemer of all things. All of these things are found in me. Not just a vague, nebulous future of, of heaven but it's in the person and work of Jesus that this future is a possibility. And this statement, if you've been around here, I know we have some visitors here this morning, and, and we've been in this series called you know, the I Am Statements of Jesus from, from John's Gospel. And, and this I Am statement is pregnant with meaning. Because back in Exodus <clears throat> chapter 3, maybe you know this story, maybe you've heard this story before, and Again, if you've been around the scriptures at all, it's, it's Moses in the burning bush, right? We love the story. So Moses is <clears throat> at the burning bush, and God reveals himself, and, and Moses has a great question. Well, uh, what is your name, God? Who should, who should I say that you are? And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, he says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Okay. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am 
has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I am? That seems kind of nebulous. No, I am sent you. What does I am mean? I am means I've always been. It just means be in the Hebrew. It's just, it's just I am always existent, all sufficient. God doesn't need anything or anyone. He's eternal from eternity past and eternity future and eternity present. The I am is here. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's talking about his divinity. He's not saying I'm just a, a rabbi in the first century with pithy sayings about how to get on with life. He says, I am the I am. I've always been the self-sufficient one, the one that doesn't need anything or anyone. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so now we can fully understand this expression of God in this mysterious way that now we've seen God and what he's like in Jesus. That if you've seen the Father, you've seen the Son. And if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. If you have any questions about who God is and what he's like, we look at Jesus. And guess what? That's the same I am in the Old Testament. It's not angry God, Old Testament, gracious, loving God, sprinkling people with love dust in the New Testament. It's all the same holy, just, gracious God. The I am is here. I am the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus, when he's engaging Martha that her brother is going to die, why haven't you been here? If only you would have come. He's pushing her and persuading her and challenging her to trust him, to hope in him, that he is the I am that's always been from eternity future who's now broken to the present in his son, Jesus. And so what he's asking Martha to do is, is change her, if only, to if Jesus. If Jesus is who he says he is, if, if Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one the, the prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever comes on the scene was coming into the world to live and die and rise again, if Jesus is God's own son, now strangely and newly present in him, if, if he is the resurrection in person and the life in person forever, a whole new world has opened up. I'm asking you, Martha, change your if only to if Jesus is who he says he is. I, I love what J.I. Packer, a Christian writer, theologian, wrote years ago. He says, optimism is a wish without warrant. Christian hope is a certainty guaranteed by God himself. Optimism reflects ignorance as to whether good things will ever actually come. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of his life and every moment beyond it, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. Now, I like this quote, and I don't like this quote, because I think Christians should be the most optimistic people on the face of the planet. And it's not because we don't believe bad things happen to bad people or that suffering's not real or that somehow we just anesthetize things and we just kind of push them under the rug and we just go, happy, clappy, yay, pain's not real. I guess we're not paying attention if that's true for you. 
But we should be the most optimistic people because the tomb is empty and because God is committed to us and God is committed to his world to redeem and restore all things. So the future is always bright. That even if your brother is laying in the tomb who's been dead for four days, the future is always bright. There's always hope. Now, God may not answer that prayer the way that you want. And I know some of you are walking in here this morning and your prayers aren't being answered in the ways you'd hope. You have sick spouses. It just don't seem to be getting better. You have sick kids. You have job loss. You have, you have mental instability. You have addiction. You have all kinds of things that are, that are weighing you down. You just go, God, I don't know if I can go another day. I think every Christian should be very much optimistic, not because of that somehow God's just going to magically heal us. He might not, but he might. But the, the tomb is empty, and it's based in historical fact, not in feeling. Any days you just feel like God's a million miles away, right? I hope so, because that's part of the Christian life. But here's the thing. Feelings don't matter all that much. God, God cares about our feelings. He wants to redeem those feelings. He wants to give us joy. You bet. But, but in those moments, in those times, we just go like, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Is I can look to historical reality and eyewitness accounts of a God who walked out of a tomb, who rose Lazarus from the dead, and say, yes and amen, my faith is there. I may not understand it all. I may not have all the details nailed down. But our faith is not a leap into the dark. And I don't want a faith that's a leap into the dark. I need something a little more earthy. I don't need woo-woo stuff. I want spine in my faith. And the Christian faith is the only one that gives you spine. A rock-solid metal rebuilt spine because it's rooted in history and testimony and not in woo-woo feelings. Not that feelings don't matter. But that's where we go as we look and and whatever we're walking into, we we see this Jesus walk out of the tomb to say, I know you don't understand what's going on, but look at me. Look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. There's always hope in me. And the story of Lazarus is, is a great story, but it was always a precursor and a pointer to ultimately when Jesus would walk out of out of the grave. That we just celebrated a couple nights ago, Good Friday, and, and, and laid our, our sins before the Lord and, and laid our, our burdens down. But, but the tomb is empty. And, 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 and in, in John chapter 20, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken, away the, taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. I love this. Here's why I love this. Because they're so confused. They don't know what's going on. Like, these are the people that walked with Jesus. We always say, well, if I walk with Jesus, I'd have faith. No, you wouldn't. They didn't. Here's Peter. They didn't. He's been telling them for three years, I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect from the dead. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then it happens and they're nowhere to be found. And they think somebody stole Jesus. Grave robbers. find great comfort in that in a weird obvious way. You don't have to have it all figured out. The people that walked with them didn't have it all figured out. You know what I love in the ascension is when Jesus is standing there he's going to give the great commission to his disciples and Jesus ascends up into heaven in the clouds and it says some believed and some doubted. 
Like, like what does Jesus have to do? Like, oh, I got a cousin. He does that. I've seen that. <laughs> All the time. Comes over. Yeah, he levitates. No big deal. All right? Like, what, what does he have to do? But so here they are at the tomb, totally confused. Peter says, I'm, I'm going to love you, Lord, to the end. And then he says, ah, Jesus says, no, actually, you're not. You're going to betray me. And yes, he does betray him. They think a grave robber's come. So Peter went out with the other disciple. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Now, if you were going to steal a body out of a tomb, you wouldn't nicely neat unwrap the body and lay them in the tomb, by the way. That's because he's not there, but anyway, that's here or there. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloths which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. And in Luke's gospel, on the account of Luke's gospel resurrection story, we hear some of the most profound words in all of Scripture and the most important words in all of scripture in verse 6 of 24 he is not here but has risen he's not here blaine prayed that this morning it, there's no grave site to go to find jesus he's not a memorial we don't worship a dead deity we don't we don't see jesus as as you know he has some nice philosophy and some moral you know wisdom that we can kind of follow and and, you know, we have this book, and we can just kind of, you know, listen to its pithy sayings. He's alive. He's not here. He's risen from the dead. And so the, the story of Lazarus is a precursor to what he was going to do. He was going to walk out of the tomb on the third day, fully bodily resurrected from the dead. Not an angel, not a spiritual being, as bodily as you and I can see your own body and pinch your own skin. That you could see the nails that went into his hands and the, the spear that went into his side. And even his own disciples said, can I, can I, he said, hey, touch it. Totally alive, bodily alive. Jesus put death on notice. He overcame sin on the cross, becoming sin for us. He took our judgment day because he's alive. And now we can be alive now and forever. There's no other philosophy. There's no other religion. There's nothing that even comes close to the Christian faith. It's not about a God who yells from heaven and says, get your act together, figure it out. It's not about a philosophy or religion that says, maybe if you do enough good things, maybe if you, you show up to enough of, of these religious gatherings, maybe if you, you read the right things and, and be a good person, then maybe, just maybe, you'll, you'll, you'll receive my blessings, you'll get into heaven, or, or you'll have a new transformed life, or whatever the religion teaches. That Jesus Christ of Nazareth comes into human history and takes his own medicine and becomes as human as you and I are human. And lives a life we couldn't live and dies a death we should have died and rises again to victoriously, Jesus takes his own medicine and says, you can't do this on your own. You can't do this on your own. So what is 
this all mean for us today? Like, like what are the, the implications of that? I mean, Ryan, you've been talking about a lot of highfalutin things, but, but what, how can we kind of get this on, on the ground a little bit? Does this have any bearing on my life today, tomorrow, next week, on Monday, 50 years from now, a million years from now? Oh, there's a, there's a million things. Because I think this is where we miss and under, misunderstand what eternal life actually is. So go back to John 11. When, when, G, when um, Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life, notice what else he says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So though you die, that's all coming for everyone. I, I hope you know that. We can't escape that. It's a result of sin. It's a result of the fall. The death was part of that. And, and we can't escape that. It doesn't matter how much kale you eat. You can protein this shake all you want. You can hit the treadmill. I mean, you should. These aren't bad things. You can get some protein in you. Lift a weight. wouldn't hurt you. But we can't outrun death. No one can. But, but Jesus is saying something very... He, he's saying, saying, if you believe in me, if you trust that I am who I say am, that I am the resurrection, right? whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. This is a profound statement because do you remember Luke's gospel? On the cross, there's two criminals hanging next to Jesus. And what does one of those criminals ask of Jesus? Will you remember me in paradise? Jesus. And, and, and something, actually, this actually helps us understand what happens when we die. Like, what, what, if we're a believer in Christ, what does that even mean? Well, notice what Jesus says in Luke 23, verse 42, 43. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here's what Jesus says. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You hear it? Today you will be with me in paradise. When you die, the way we understand the scriptures is all it is is just closing your eyes and waking up in paradise. That's all it is. All, all this talk of, of suffering, and, oh, they died, this and that, but if you're a believer in, in Christ, he's saying to this criminal right on the cross, he, doesn't, he hasn't read, read Tim Keller. He doesn't know who John Piper is. He didn't write, read the Institutes. He doesn't have the Scriptures. His faith is, remember me, Jesus. Something's going on here in the cross. I know you're hung up here and you're innocent. I don't know exactly all that's happening here, but, but something's here. Could you just remember me? And he says, today, so in a few hours, when you die this bloody, horrific death, the same death I'm going to die in a, in a few hours is, you're with me in paradise. Just open your eyes. Now we understand later there will be a resurrection in the new heavens and the earth where we'll receive these heavenly bodies. That's coming later. But the moment that you and I close our eyes and take our last breath, we will be in the presence of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, now there's two ways we, we need to sit with this. There is still sting in death. Have you ever held the hand of a loved one who died at the, at the side of their bed? There's a sting there. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that it doesn't matter or we're flipping about death. But he said there's a victory in death because it's been overcome by Jesus. The sting of death is sin. That's why we have death. Death is not normal. Hear me. 
Death is a result of sin. Death is a result of the broken world. We shouldn't talk about death in terms of, this is just natural of how things are. Yes, on one level, but that's not the way it was supposed to be. That Adam and Eve in the garden were in perfect communion with God, in perfect communion with each other, in perfect communion with the whole entire cosmos. And it's not the way it was supposed to be. But sin came into the world, and they said, no, thank you, God. We're going to live life on our own. And now death is a result of that. But it's been swallowed up. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we die, we blink, and then we're in the presence of God. Our future is secure. That's a huge implication for how we live our lives. As much as we're trying to preserve ourselves, right? rather than give our lives away, rather than lay our crosses down, rather give our lives in sacrificial love and service. We're always trying to preserve ourselves, just get a little more out of this life. But our future is already secured. That, that the worst of the worst can happen, and we'll say, okay, Lord, I know there's a glorious future awaiting me. And death doesn't have the last say. And sin doesn't have the last say. And addiction and, and mental health and, and whatever we're struggling with, fear, depression, anxiety, where it doesn't, whatever the thing is, whatever your thing is, there's a future for us. But there's also a present. Like, I, I don't want us to live and just say, because I think this is where we, we kind of miss, miss the point, is that your current life has also a new power. Your current life has a new power because of this eternal life. That, that I know many Christians, it's like, well, you know, it doesn't matter, it's all going to burn. So just going to heaven someday. That, that's not a very useful person. And actually, with new heavens and new earth, it's actually going to be transformed, not just burn, right? The whole world's going to be redeemed, and our bodies are going to be redeemed. We're going to live and rule and reign on this actual earth, a redeemed earth, a redeemed new heavens and a, a, new, a redeemed earth. But there's a, a current life that has a new power. So he says, trust me. Notice what he, he says in 11, uh, John 11, but going back there. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He says there's, a, there's an eternal life that's here now. It's not just for a future, which is all true. Your future is secure. But there's eternal life now to enjoy. There's resurrection life now to enjoy. How does John uh, describe eternal life? Well, in John 17, it gives us a nice little definition in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Wow, that gives us a really different definition of eternal life, doesn't it? Eternal life is just believe and get to heaven. I can't wait for heaven. It's all about heaven. But here's John saying, no, 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 eternal life is to know the living God. To know creator and redeemer, Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, here and now. That's where our lives are animated. That's where we have a new quality of life, that we have communion, we have fellowship, whatever language the scriptures use and the language you want to use, we have a relationship with the living God by faith. That eternal life is available now. That now we see all things differently. That we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That doesn't mean life is perfect. That doesn't mean sin is not a struggle anymore. That doesn't mean cancer is just going to go away and that somehow we levitate two feet off the ground every day because we're Christians. I could point 15 people out right now that are walking through some really, really hard things. And God hasn't taken that away yet. He may never. 
but they have eternal life now. They have resurrection life now to walk right in the midst of the fire. And it's not happy, clappy optimism that nothing ever is going to, right? It's, it's this reality that the tomb is empty. There's a reality of forgiveness and hope and life after life. <laughs> and life after death that we walk in. I love what, what Romans uh, says about this, this, this current, present power. In Romans chapter uh, 6, gives us a little more insight into understanding what the resurrection is all about and what happened to us and all those who believe in Christ. In Romans 6, verse 5, For if we have been united with him, Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died also to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's present tense. You are alive now. Like, did you just hear what he said? That resurrection that happened with Jesus is exactly the same way your resurrection is going to happen. Now, I love talking about this because I think it's a beautiful reality. What does Jesus do after he resurrects from the dead? He, he meets all these different people, he, Thomas and you know, Peter and all these people. But one of my favorite stories is when he comes to the disciples and they're fishing. And what does he say? What's for breakfast? Like, what? Like, that, Jesus, that's not very spiritual. Like, why aren't you having a Bible study? Right? Why aren't you teaching them systematic theology, Jesus? But, but what does he do? He shows up fully resurrected from the dead and says, hey, what's for dinner? Should we eat? But what does that mean? It, it means this, the world is not a closed system. It, it means that the, the resurrection speaks to new heavens and new earth when, when one day we'll have bodies just like that and we'll eat and drink and rule and reign with God for all of eternity, just like Jesus, fully alive. But no more sin and no more death and no more insecurities. No more trying to prove ourselves. No incomplete love. That, that our capacities will, will, will change in every way. Things that we can't even imagine in this life. But here's Jesus saying, hey, what's for dinner? I, I think we've made the Christian life too woo-woo. I know I've said that a few times, but I like that word, woo-woo. You know what I mean by woo-woo? Just too woo right? It's just, it, it doesn't get earthy enough. But Jesus' resurrection said it's all kind of earthy, right? We can enjoy these things. That's why the scriptures say, hey, whatever you eat or drink, do it for the glory of, of God. Remember who it comes from. Be thankful for who it comes from. Where we get it wrong, Romans 1 said, is instead of worshiping the creator and giving him thanks, we worship the creation thinking, this is it, right? But as C.S. Lewis said, it's always been a pointer. All the good gifts that we have are always pointing to, to beyond us to say, we're created for eternity. We're created for God. We're made in the image of God and our hearts just, just pump and bleed and, and, and long for the day where we could be back in the garden where things were supposed to be the way they're supposed to be, right and good and in harmony, right? So, so there's this, this new power that we have, this eternal life that comes 
to us. And then, and then there, there's also just this new mission and, and a new purpose for us. There's an interesting verse at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul has spent a lot of time explaining the resurrection and what's going to happen to us and our bodies and, and heaven and, and all these kinds of things. It's a beautiful text. We don't have time to, to go through, through it in, in detail. But, but at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, as almost a practical point to say, in light of Jesus, the empty tomb, in light of death being conquered and sin being conquered, all these beautiful things we know to be true, Notice what Paul says in verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I don't think that's a verse just for pastors and missionaries. I think that's a verse for all believers because of the resurrection. Because God is making all things new now and forever. That your work, Eric, as an engineer matters. That, Brooke, your work as taking care of children and educating them matters. Scott, your work with college students matters. Scott, squared, your work with, at Starbucks matters. As a mother, as a father, as a worker, whatever you're called to, because of resurrection, we have a new mission and a new purpose that God cares about this world. God cares about injustice. God cares about the weak and the vulnerable because he's making all things new. He doesn't say it's just junk. It's just going to burn up. That's what resurrection gives us, a new impetus of all the work that we do, whether we're working in the pharmacy or whether we're taking taking kids to school. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever work you're, you're called to, it's not wasted because of the resurrection. It's not. And I don't have all the details worked out. I don't always understand exactly how that's going to work. But I'm going to trust that when Jesus walked out of the tomb, the whole world changed. And my life changed, and your life changed, and all who believe it changed. And the way that we get in on this, the way that we can have our future secured, and the, and the way that our current life can have a new, new power, new eternal life, and the way we can have a new mission and a new purpose is a simple response of faith. A childlike faith. Just like Martha. Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, some theologians will argue and say that's just a very weak statement of faith, and I find comfort in that. He doesn't have it all worked out. Okay, you didn't come when I thought you would come and to raise you know, my brother from the dead, but you did say you are the resurrection and the life. I don't have that all worked out. there. I know there's some kind of general resurrection coming, but you just said some really profound things. But yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. That's where I'm going to bank my life. And that's what simple childlike faith is. It's, it's not having it all worked out. It's not you know, trying to get our act together and figure it all out. It's, it's just a simple, I trust, I believe that you are who you say, that you are the resurrection, you are the life, that I can't overcome death. I can't overcome sin on my own. I can't, I can't have this life that you promised. I can't have my future secured. And maybe you're in here this morning, and that's where you feel. You feel like all these if-onlys just haunt me every single day. If only I wouldn't have done this or that. God can't. 
God can't work with me. I'm just a failure. I'm a bum. I'm a whatever. He can't forgive me. I mean, Ryan, do you understand like what I even did this week, what I even thought this week? But here's the beauty. We just celebrated this a couple days ago. The cross is outed all of us. The cross and the resurrection has outed all of us. There is nothing, believe me, I'm a pastor, there's nothing I haven't seen, by the way. I mean, there might be like two or three things that are probably coming, but nothing shocks me anymore. And God sees it too. And he saw it and was willing to lay his life down on an altar for it, on a cross for it, to, to bear our sin, to bear the weight of all that evil, all that it does, all the things you've said, all the things you did, past, present, and future. That he outed all of us and says, even despite those things, you can't save yourself, you can't overcome sin, you can't overcome death. There's still hope in me because I walked out of the grave. The sin has no more, doesn't have the last day. Death doesn't have the last day. There is a victory that I've won for you. And I know you better than you know you. Now, one of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, says this about the resurrection. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits. That's 1 Corinthians 15. The pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of resurrection is that the door has been opened. The door of hope, the door of life, the door of salvation, it's been opened wide open that I was thinking about this week, that there is nothing in this life that doesn't have hope. And the only reason is because of the resurrection. Just name it. Name what anything. Nothing that cannot be redeemed because of the resurrection. No, no wars, no famine, no death, no anything. Because of resurrection, the door has been opened. And Jesus invites us by faith to walk through the door and become his children to lay down that I can't defeat sin on my own, I can't defeat death on my own, I, I, I can't solve the problems of my life on my own, I need you, I need your life in me, that I've rebelled against you, that you are the king who has overcome death, you are the king that has overcome sin, you are the king that has overcome hell, you are the king that took my judgment day, you are the king who loves me, for I know the Bible tells me so. And it's a simple confession, Jesus, I trust you, I believe you, I need you. That's all it takes. That's where it all begins. And a few weeks ago, I think Andy was talking about, maybe Scott, I forget who, but of this house that God's building. And when we believe in Christ, the house is a mess, by the way. But as a loving father, he'll deal with all the rooms. But as a gentle, loving father, Hey, let's, let's talk about that. Let's, let's, let's engage that. <laughs> but that's not where it begins. It begins with, I trust you, I believe in you, I need you. And the door is open to all. Come on in. All who are hungry, all who are thirsty, come and drink of me. 
is I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of heaven. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the I am. Let us pray. Father, the door has been opened because of resurrection. Because of the resurrection and life that we have in Jesus. God, it's silly to try to think that one human could even try to begin to describe and communicate and make sense of the profound realities of the God-man coming back to life and what that means for us. But I pray, God, whatever we've sung this morning, or I've said this morning, that, that God, you would use it somehow just to, to, to help us think on this truth, these realities again in maybe fresh ways. And I know for many people that are in this, this room, they're walking through very difficult times and in a season of doubt and fear and anxiety and wondering, and then these if-onlys are just so real. Why is this happening? Where are you, oh God? And yet I pray that the, the hope of resurrection would come and meet them. The Spirit of Christ would come and meet them and show them that there's always a way. And there's always hope. And it may not always look like the way we want it to. As we sang earlier, help our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the, the privileges uh, as a church is we take communion every, every Sunday. And, and what a great tangible picture of what Jesus accomplished by the cross and by the resurrection. And um, the bread representing the broken body of Christ. And the uh, juice representing the, the blood shed to atone for our sins, to forgive us of all of our sins. And, and the scriptures say that when we do this, do this of me, but also do this with a future hope, a future reality that Jesus is coming again to restore all things. So when we come, this is a, a hope-filled meal. This is a, a remembering meal, not just of, uh, of what happened in the past, but also the grace that's been given us in the present, but also the future that is coming. When all things will be all because of the resurrection of Christ. So if you're born in Christ, please come and celebrate this morning. Um, the way we take communion, we break a piece of bread, we dip it in the cup. There'll be two lines in the front. If you need any uh, gluten-free allergy bread in the middle there, feel free to take that. And if you're not a believer in Christ, we have some prayers in our city life you can look over and think over. Um, and if you have questions about the faith, about Christianity, if, you're, if you want to talk about the sermon, or, or anything, I'd love to chat with you about that. Um, we've all been there. And as we like to say around here, it's maybe time to doubt your own doubts. Um, and, and we've all been there. And so, so with that, let us celebrate the Lord's Supper together.